Good morning, church. Uh, we're going to study God's Word together, so let me invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. So if you'd follow along as I read, I'm going to read the first 19 verses of John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's son, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. He goes on, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's a reference to John, the author of this gospel. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with, with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. So by this point, they know this is Jesus. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. So there is a, there's a good kind of broken. And I wonder if, as a church, if we're broken, if we have been broken yet. And I mean broken, again, in a good way. I mean broken in the sense of meek, humble, uh, the kind of brokenness that's self-aware. We know that we're weak. We know that we're frail. We know as a church, this is part of what I think brokenness means when it gets into the culture of a church, we, we know that God delights most in this attribute. And the attribute that God delights most in is not knowledge. 
It's not boldness. It's not grit. It's humility. It's meekness. God loves meekness. He loves humility. It says in the, in the prophets in Isaiah that the Lord is drawn to those who tremble at his word, those who are lowly before him. It's a humble place and a humble posture. I believe, friends, that there is a giant tombstone in this passage. Peter, the super Christian. Peter, the everybody else will forsake you, but not this guy. I'll be the last one who, who turns on you, right? That guy gets buried right on this beach in John chapter 21. Peter leaves John 21 a changed man. He leaves John 21 with a limp. He leaves with the gift of brokenness. He, he's, but he's not just been broken. He gets a new start. That's why the name of the message is a tombstone and a new start. Everybody um, probably knows a Christian who we would consider to be self-sufficient. But few of us are ready to admit, I'm that guy. Very few of us, I think, have that kind of self-awareness that I live in self-reliance, right? Uh, so we're going to see three scenes. And I hope in the process of this, the Lord's going to teach us some things about who he is and about who we are by grace. So we're going to see this in three scenes that unfold. Each of them is filled, I believe, with implications for our lives as Christians. And the first scene is this, reunion in Galilee. Reunion in Galilee. So if you look there at verse 14, verse 14 tells us this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Each one of these appearances to his disciples has had significance. Each one of them has had unique kind of a singular focus to them. The purpose of this encounter, this, uh, this text really hits street level at verse 15. Jesus is gunning for this encounter with Peter. It's what this whole chapter is about. It's moving toward uh, this encounter with Peter where Jesus is going to restore him. After Peter's legendary threefold denial, Jesus is going to give him a threefold affirmation to offer. Everything's going to be right at the end of this. That's where this story is going. But when we first meet Jesus in John chapter 21, we don't know it's Jesus. We're positioned, if you will, on the boat with the disciples 100 yards out. There's this mysterious figure on the shore calling out. We hear his name, but we don't know who he is. And, and he asks a question. And the original language of the New Testament is interesting here when Jesus asks this question. You know, in English, um, I can ask a question in a way, you can ask a question in a way that anticipates a certain response. So I could say, for example, you're going to the party, right? And if I ask it that way, what's the response that I anticipate? I'm expecting you to say, yes, you're going to the party, right? Yes is the response that I'm expecting. Or I could ask it the other way. I could say, you're not going to the party, are you? And in that scenario, I'm expecting a response of no. Well, in the original language of the New Testament, in the, in the Greek, um, this is not just an open-ended question. Uh, it's not just, children, do you have any fish? It's... Jesus knows the answer is no. It is tilted toward no. He says, you don't have any fish, do you? He, he is aware of the fact that they've been fishing all night and they've come up empty. Again, they still don't know who he is, but he says, cast the net on the other side of the boat and watch what happens. And they cast the net on the other side of the boat and there's this massive haul. They can't even hardly bring it into the boat. They're unable to bring it all the way in. It's, it's obviously... A, a miraculous event. And so John 
the author of this gospel, he is a man of insight. Peter's a man of action. John says, it's the Lord. Peter dives into the water, right? Peter's swimming towards shore. Now there's one fewer guy to actually haul this thing and drag this boat back in. But Peter is a man of action. He's in the water. He's headed toward Jesus. It, um, it's kind of a strange scene, isn't it? Uh, a a well-known, um, noteworthy New Testament scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, he makes an interesting observation in his commentary. He says this, quote, Remarkably, the disciples never catch a fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. So doesn't that strike us as suggestive that you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these disciples who were fishermen never catch any fish without Jesus' help. I doubt it's the point of the gospel writers to, to tell us these fishing stories in a way that we're led to believe that these guys didn't know how to fish. It was their living. They, they knew this. They, they were very aware of how to do this thing, right? It's telling us something else. This is in your notes for us. Fishing in the Gospels is about more than fishing. Fishing in the Gospels is about more than fishing. So even when we read John 21, our minds should be going back to an earlier place. If we're familiar with the story, the, the accounts of the Gospels and how Jesus met these guys on day one, Jesus meets them three years earlier before John 21. Three years earlier, Jesus meets them. They've got nets in their hands. They're in, they're in the middle of a fishing expedition. And Jesus says this. Here's, this is uh, Mark's account in chapter 1, verse 17. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So that's the beginning of Jesus' time with these disciples. And here we are three years later, post-crucifixion, after his resurrection. And still, from, from that moment on in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus first met them and said, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people, fish for men. From that moment forward, all the fishing trips in the Gospels are kind of living parables. There's this deeper story underneath what's happening there. <clears throat> and it's pointing to the central ministry of the Christian life for followers of Jesus is he calls his followers to make disciples. We talk about this as a church all the time. It's one of our big three. We want to love Jesus, grow in Jesus, make disciples of Jesus. It's in the Great Commission. We recite it every Sunday. Go make disciples of all nations. So this is the central task of the Christian, to make disciples. We do it in the home. We do it in our communities, making disciples. We, we do it among the nations in Great Commission work around the world. So Jesus calls his followers to fish for people, to, to cast, if you will, the net of God's grace as wide as you possibly can and haul in so that people believe in this gospel that we have and they put their faith in Jesus and they find life in his name, which is what John's gospel is all about. He wants to tell these stories so that people believe and find life through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's this humbling reality, right? That just like fishermen in the Gospels couldn't catch fish for all their techniques and learning, they couldn't catch fish without help from Jesus, neither can we make a single disciple without help 
from Jesus. We're not relying on our techniques. We're not relying on our method or on, you know, years of experience. No, we rely on the Lord. That's why earlier in the, in the farewell discourse, we saw those famous words from Jesus in John chapter 15, where he said, apart from me, you can do only a few things. No, that's not what he said. He said, apart from me, you can do zilch. You can't do anything. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders are laboring in vain. They can't do anything apart from reliance on God, reliance on Christ. Friend, let me just ask you, Christian friend, what are you leaning on right now? What is your hope in right now? You, you want to find misplaced trust in your life? So there's misplaced trust in all of our lives. And I think COVID-19 is kind of helping draw some of that out. In a left-handed way, that is a little bit of the blessing that we're seeing misplaced hopes that existed in our lives. We didn't see them before. We were blind to it. But now those blind spots are becoming clear. You want to find misplaced hope in your life. Uh, look at your agitation. Uh, study, study the area of your life where you are working your fingers to the bone. This is going to be right. I don't have time to Sabbath. I don't have time to rest. I'm unwilling to relinquish control of the outcome in this area. And, and, and listen, that's a place of misplaced trust. Jesus is identifying that with this question. You don't have any fish, do you? Right? It almost might seem cruel for Jesus to pull up alongside after a moment where they've been fishing all night long. This is something that they've been proficient at all their lives. They've been fishing all night long, and Jesus pulls up alongside, and he says, you pulled another all-nighter. Do you have any fish? He knows the answer is no. After all your zealous toil in this area, how's that working out? Right? That, friend, um, that's not Jesus being cruel. That is, that is mercy knocking. That is, that is Jesus coming in close, offering his, his omniscient assessment of our misplaced trust. We, we need that. You and I, we need that. Friends, Jesus is more fiercely committed to our depending on him than he is to giving us immediate results. Let me say that again. I put that in your notes so that we could write it down and look at it. Jesus is more fiercely committed to our depending on him than he is to giving us immediate results. And I think there's really another picture here in this section. So they, they get to shore and Jesus, I love this. Jesus has a fire already going uh, and, and he tells them, bring the fish. And Peter goes and gets the fish and drags it to the shore and he comes back and Jesus says these words, come and have breakfast. Don't, don't just pass over that too quickly. That The sun is coming up on the lake. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And what's he doing? grilling. He is, he is cooking. That is not a scepter of righteousness in his hand. Those are tongs. He is, he is cooking for the fellas. He, is, he has hallowed barbecue. He has hallowed <laughs> seafood forever, right? I, I see this picture in John chapter 21, and I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm on Jesus' staff, I'm saying, hey, look, this fish is amazing, but can we just walk down the street right there? Like, there's, that's a heavily populated area. We walk off this beach, we walk you down the street. You don't have 12 followers. By the end of the afternoon, you got 12,000 followers. Let's just get moving. Like, let's, let's put this in a to-go box and let's go on mission. Look, Jesus is not rushing this. You might ask the question, doesn't a resurrected Messiah 
have better things to do with his time than, than cook for the boys, right? With limited time left on earth, Jesus doesn't run a tight schedule. There's no way he would rather spend this morning in John 21 than with these fish on that grill with these guys at that table and he's going to bring them bread and he's going to say, you wait there. And he comes back and he brings them the fish. Friends, um, just remember, there's an insight tucked in here. Jesus' plan isn't to change the world via conference tours or displays of miraculous power. His plan is to change the world through the witness of these apostles. So why rush this? This is important time with them. This is a picture of disciple making that we get here in John chapter 21. The picture of disciple making we get here is it's slow. It's deeply relational. Praise the Lord. In this particular case, it involves food. It's a heavily relational, hospitality oriented text. Jesus is unhurried. And, and the, the application of this for our own lives is just, um, it's, it's not deeply insightful or complicated, the people God has called you to disciple need time with you. Again, I know that's not some deep insight, but I could use that as a reminder on a regular basis. Your kids need time with you. The college student that you're mentoring needs time with you. The single mom that you're reaching out to in Zoom conversations these days, right? The people group that you want to share good news with in cross-cultural evangelism, they need time They need presence. Jesus is demonstrating that here. A fascinating picture of Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. He is soon to ascend to the Father, sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And from that throne, he's going to superintend the rise and fall of every nation on planet Earth in history until Jesus returns again. But this particular morning in verse 13... He's bringing bread to the table and he's saying, you stay there, I'll be back. And he goes and he comes back with fish. The Savior in John 21, resurrected king, is wearing an apron. He loves to serve his people. He is is a humble servant, Savior. Praise God for this. This is one of the things that we learn in the prophecies and ancient history before Jesus comes. that He would be the servant of the Lord and he would serve the people. I wonder if maybe some of you, you haven't believed in Jesus Christ and followed him with your life and given him full control of your life. Maybe because up to this point, you just haven't had the right Jesus in view. Maybe you've had in your mind... Jesus is so unapproachable. Maybe you saw the movie that I grew up seeing where Jesus of Nazareth, you know, um, wider than even I am, uh, crystal blue eyes, and probably the most emotionally distant human being ever captured on film, right? And that's the person you just begin to associate. That's the only picture you've ever had. And you just begin to associate Jesus as this emotionally distant, aloof God that... If that's the Jesus you've been presented, what you need is John chapter 21. Here's here's the real Jesus. The one who is most worthy of praise is most humble. He is the most humble. Listen, 
Um, all these guys that he's bringing bread to them and saying, who wants seconds and going back and getting fish for them, they abandon him. That's not like buried under the sands of time. That happened a couple weeks ago. That's, that's in the same month of what's happening here. One of them went to great lengths to say, I never met the man. He completely denied. That's Peter, right? And that's going to be set right in just a moment. But one wonders, how, how, how does Jesus treat these men as, as friends in a moment like this? How does he not come guns blazing, right? Both barrels, confrontation mode. Can, can I say to you, um, you who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, this picture of Jesus in John chapter 21, this is, if I can speak personally, this is the Jesus I have come to know. But this is the Jesus who has carried me through uh, suffering, hard chapters of life, anguish. This is the Jesus who, uh, who tells me that his blood shed on the cross covers all the wrong that I've ever done, all my sins, my guilt, my shame. He said, That's, I'm going to heap that on myself and carry that to the grave. Then I'm going to come out and give you new life. This is the Jesus who, who has promised that every pain that I taste in this fallen world will be outweighed by infinite and eternal joy when, when Jesus returns. Who would not believe in a Jesus like that, in this Jesus, one like this who died to cover all our sins, who rose to give us new life if we follow him and believe in him? Friend, if I can just say to you again, the best decision you could make today, the best decision you will ever make in your life is to repent and believe is to turn from what you were trusting in five minutes ago, misplaced hope, and put your faith and trust in Jesus and put, give your life over into the hands of this awesome, glorious, loving Savior. Look, you can do that before we're done. You can put your trust in him even now. You can cry out to him. That's why the Apostle Paul, I love the simplicity of the Apostle Paul's words, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call, he saves. That's, that's how it works. That's how glorious grace is. Three, three scenes. So reunion in Galilee. Two, reckoning with reality. There's a reckoning with reality. So Jesus has already asked one uncomfortable question. You don't have any fish, do you? Right? They've been fishing all night long. That's not a comfortable question. He knows the answer is no. But his question in verse 15 it cuts deeper because he looks at, at Peter and he says, do you love me more than these? So just back up. Why is Peter probably feeling awkward in this particular moment? He, um, because their last private conversation went like this. Luke records it in his gospel. Simon, Simon, look out. Jesus is talking to Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, so he's going to turn away, but when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, Peter told him, 
I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What does that mean? That means Peter literally just sloughed off Jesus' prediction about Peter's face plant. And Peter says, you got the wrong guy. I'm not going to ever cave on you. Verse 34, I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. And when you keep reading that chapter in Luke's gospel, you see that prediction come true. Just a number of verses later, the heat is on and Peter does what he thought he never would do. Somebody's nearby and they say, you're associated with the guy who just got arrested, right? And Peter feels the heat encroaching and he says, no, I don't, I don't know. Never met the man before. And he says it once. He says it twice. He says it three times. And Luke's gospel, fascinating. He records this. The Lord turned right after Peter's third denial. The Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered and went out and wept bitterly. So as Peter's denying Jesus, Jesus is a stone's throw away and they make eye contact in that moment right after Peter fails his Lord, betrays his Lord. And then what happens? Well, you know the story. We've talked about it even these past two weeks. Jesus goes to his death on the cross and then he's raised again from the dead. And then word gets to the disciples, the, the women who were there at the tomb. The angel says, tell Peter and the disciples that Jesus wants to meet them in Galilee. And so they come to the disciples and they say, Jesus wants to meet you all in Galilee. And Peter, the, the angel mentioned you by name, right? Well, how do you feel about that? Now, here they are in Galilee, just like Jesus said. There's Jesus. There's Peter. Peter sort of maybe awkwardly pushing his fish around the plate, right? And, and here's the turning point of the passage. Verse 15, Simon, son of John. And, and this stings. Simon, son of John, was his name the day that he met Jesus. They were introduced to each other by that name. In John chapter 1, uh, Jesus says, So, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. And Jesus' conventional name for Peter from that moment on is he calls him Peter, Petros, meaning rock. He leaves behind Simon, son of John. Well, today Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He says, Simon, son of John. It's as though we're back at square one. Something, something's happening here. And then he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you still think that no one is as devoted to me as you are? You, do you still see your spiritual cape flapping in the wind behind you? Do you love me more than these? We, we get to know Peter when we read the other Gospels. And I think one of the things that we discover is Peter always saw himself as a cut above the rest. He would, with some frequency, compare himself favorably against the other disciples. The others weren't as bold as he was. They weren't as spiritually strong, as resolute as he was. Peter, Peter said, again, everybody will forsake you. I'll be the last guy who ever forsakes you. So why does Jesus ask these, these questions? He's, he's not trying to guilt Peter into change. He's doing deep cleansing in this moment he was he was killing peter's self-sufficiency he's killing pride 
Look, when, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin as believers, when he shows us our sin, friends, that is a gift. That is a mercy from God because self-righteousness is deadly. We become proud. That opens the door for so much. Right? Pride goes before a fall. It opens us up to every manner of temptation. Grace is no longer amazing to us. We think ourselves, right? We become self-righteous. We start thinking of ourselves as immune to the temptations of lesser Christians. You know, other people would fall, right? But that, that would afflict weaker Christians. That was, doesn't really affect me. Next thing you know, even in the way that we minister and relate to other Christians, we, we're sort of doing it while we're holding our noses. We sort of act like we're above them. There's this air of disdain and contempt toward their, their foibles and their weaknesses. Or, or on the other hand, maybe we do come close and we do a lot of ministry, but we relate to people as though uh, we're little saviors. Right? Thank God I was here for this moment in your life. I'm so glad that I came here, right? You're welcome. That's the way that we can sometimes relate when self-righteousness and pride is growing, spiritual pride is growing in us. Um, Christian friend, as long as you live, your greatest enemy, my greatest enemy is pride. And as long as you live, your greatest friend, my greatest friend is humility. That is what we want the most. God opposes the proud. Who wants that? He gives grace to the humble. Look, if, if you've ever been brought to the end of yourself, if you've ever had an experience that sort of broke your cape, that broke your super Christian status, that tragedy, whatever sad consequences it may have and collateral effects it might have brought into your life, that was Jesus saving you from yourself. It's a mercy from God. Any one of us could fall epically tomorrow. Any one of us. That should make us sober. That should make us weak. That should, uh, meek rather, it should make us prayerful. It should make us gentle in restoring others who have fallen. And, and listen, here's, here's probably how it would shake down. If any one of us falls epically tomorrow, I expect the people that you're going to go looking for in the church are the broken people, are the people who walk with a limp, the people who are Meek, they're, they're the people who get it. They understand, right? They're not going to have a lecture for you. Why? Because they're mercy addicts, right? They know I got mercy. It was the greatest day of my life. I didn't deserve it, but he gave me mercy when I face planted epically before him and he gave me mercy. And so that creates a kind of a church that's proficient, increasingly proficient in restoring souls in reaching prodigals, opening the front door and saying, come home to Jesus. Look, uh, here's another beautiful truth tucked inside this text when you look at it, is Peter, his restoration is initiated by Jesus. It's initiated by Jesus. Friend, grace always comes first. You bear in mind, Jesus was the offended party, and yet Jesus doesn't say, ball's in your court. You know where to find me. If you want to make this right, you know where to find me. Jesus, you know, Peter's off there fishing all night. Jesus walks up on the beach, calls his name, 
and he begins to pursue Peter to make it right. What a, what a glorious insight into the way of the gospel, the way of the good news. Jesus will search for you. Maybe he's doing it now. Maybe Jesus is actually finding you even this morning. The great hymn writer Wesley talked about when Jesus was, was moving in his direction and he said he sensed that his heart was strangely warmed. He wanted to move toward Christ. And Jesus, he, maybe he's probing. Maybe he's, he's asking the hard question. Maybe he's saying, look, you've been living life your way all along. How's that working out? That's a, that's a barbed question, right? That's a convicting question. But it's a grace from Jesus. It's mercy knocking. He's saying, you don't have any fish, do you? He's offering life. He's offering forgiveness. Reunion in Galilee, reckoning with reality. And, and third, restored to mission. The third scene here is restored to mission. So you see what happens in verse 15 through 19. I'm not going to read it all. I read it earlier. But the, the exchange is basically this. Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus asks again, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. Jesus asks him a third time, it says, do you love me? In verse 17, you see those words. Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Why? Because Jesus is giving Peter a threefold public confession to match and reverse his threefold public denial. But here's the crazy thing, though. With each of Peter's affirmations of love for the Lord, Jesus is all the while reassigning him. He is reaffirming Peter's calling, Peter's ministry, Peter's mission. So, so Peter says, Lord, you know, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Lord, you know, I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to hear those words from Jesus? If I'm Peter, I'm thinking, Jesus, when, when, when Mary, when they came back and, and they told us that you wanted to meet the disciples and, and me in Galilee, I thought I was in for the biggest rebuke of my life. I thought maybe I was going to get the silent treatment. I, I get to keep the jersey? You're still calling me into the privilege and joy of ministry? I get to shepherd your dearest ones, your flock, the apple of your eye, the church? I still get to fish with you on mission and follow you and fish for men? Look, we serve a God whose grace doesn't stop it. You're forgiven. It says you're forgiven and I've got something for you to do. It comes full circle. That's what this restoration thing is all about. No wonder Peter's a new man by the end of chapter 21, right? In, in verse 18, Jesus indicates that Peter's ministry is going to end and his life is going to end with martyrdom. Now, earlier when Jesus said, Peter, the heat's going to be on, you're going to be sifted and you're going to, you're going to fold. Right, you're going to deny me. In this particular occasion, Jesus is saying the heat's going to be on, the heat of martyrdom. You're going to lose your life. But Jesus this time doesn't talk about any predictions of denials, any you're, you're going to be a turncoat, none of that. No, no, the kindness of God and a life lived in dependence on Christ is going to carry Peter all the way to the end. And what happens? You fast forward 30 years or so. 
Peter, same guy, is in Rome. And in just a few years, he's going to be killed. He's going to be executed and martyred. And he wrote two letters to the church. And here's what he said. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He's, he doesn't love more than the others. He's not a cut above the rest. As a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. And what does he say in verse 2? Shepherd God's flock among you. I think John 21 is ringing in his ears when Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now Peter's about to die and he looks at another generation of Christians coming behind him and he says, shepherd God's flock, all of you. And then he goes on to say, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. At that point, it's been 30 years since the beach and Peter has never forgotten. This is ministry. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my flock. It's almost as though Peter writes 1 Peter 5. He writes those words sitting near the tombstone that was on the beach in John chapter 21. And he's telling this next generation of Christians, feed Christ's sheep. Not as though you're something, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Brooke Hills, I want to leave us with three brief applications. Number one, If this truth gets into our bloodstream, number one, let's depend on God through fervent prayer. That's what what it sounds like to know and to have self-awareness that we are weak, right? Prayer isn't about a word count. Prayer is, is reaching toward the God who is strong because we know that we're weak. Prayer is an acknowledgement. God alone can, can lift the heavy end, right? That's what prayer says. It is a sign of a living relationship with a living Lord. For all of our grace-enabled effort, when you pray, your soul is saying, unless the Lord builds the house, I'm laboring in vain. I could stay awake all night toiling and working and fishing, and I'm not going to catch a thing. So I just want to exhort you in this moment, while this trial remains with us, however long we're in this weird new normal, friend, learn to pray. Let's bring that art of prayer back with us into whatever phase happens next. Let's learn to pray while we're here. Two, let's fish for men. Let's share the story. Let's talk about how worthy and beautiful our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is. Let's tell people this week. Let's look for ways that we can engage our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, right? Um, with that, I pray that our church, our sending would be multiplied. Our sending toward midterm and long-term work. Would you join me in praying for that? So to combine the first point about prayer with the second point about mission, would you join me in praying? Maybe for some of you, do you think the Lord might be preparing you for a season of ministry to serve him among the nations? Let's pray, right? Whether it's among the nations, somewhere else, or right here in Birmingham, this call remains. Jesus says to you and me this week, follow me, and we're going to fish for men. So let's fish. Third, let's, let's display patience with prodigals. So the great preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was um, sitting with a number of elders many years ago. He, he's passed away since here, and 
they were evaluating a young minister for the pastorate and they had listened to him preach and then he left the room and they were giving their evaluation and after they heard him preach, there was just this ringing chorus of response around the elders in the room just saying, the church needs men like these. They need men who are strong in the word like, like this guy. And Lloyd-Jones, who had been quiet for a lot of the meeting up to that point, he, he had discerned a deeper problem and he said, here's, here's my concern, is he hasn't been broken yet. Have we been broken yet? I mean, is there a culture here at the Church of Brook Hills that we know that we are weak and he is the one who is strong? If we are, we'll be gentle with weary sinners. We'll be gentle with people who think they're out of the reach of God's grace. Whatever that might look like. You're depressed. Your life is a train wreck. You're battling doubts. You've... you've, experimenting with self-harm, right? I could add a ton of categories, right? Any of those things. If that's you, I've got a church to recommend. This one. This, this is the place where we, under the nourishment of good news in the gospel, quietly heal, right? We want you here. I want you here. Where we can hear the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as we together learn Day after day, week after week, we learn again what it means to love Jesus and grow in Jesus and make disciples of Jesus and love Jesus and grow in Jesus and making disciples of Jesus. There, there is, there's not just a tombstone in John 21. There's a new start. Jesus doesn't just say to his followers, you're forgiven. He says, he says you're forgiven. Let's go fishing. He says, you're forgiven. Feed my sheep. 